Thanks for joining us on Our Father's House's weekly podcast, A Place to Find God. Each week we bring you a sermon from our Sunday services where you can be uplifted and grow in Jesus on the go. If you have any questions or want to learn more about us, you can always check us out online by going to ofhorangeburg.com. We'd love to get to know you. Now let's get to this week's message. Definitely ushered in the Holy Spirit this morning. And I pray that he stays with me as I try to deliver a message to this to you this morning. Good morning to our Father's house. Good morning to those of you who are here in this sanctuary. And good morning to our faithful followers who are joining us online. It was not my plan to be in front of you this morning. I, I, I did not plan this at all, but years ago I adopted a little motto that says, wherever I am, that's where I'm supposed to be. All right. All right. So obviously I was supposed to be here this morning. Yes. Uh, we know that the, about the death of Pastor Colleen's sister mm-hmm. and her and the bishop are in Detroit. Uh, and they're going to penalize Pastor's sister on Tuesday. All right. And for those of you who know, that Bowman family is one large family. And it's also a family that is highly anointed by God. Yes. yes. Highly, highly anointed by God. As I stand before you this morning, I'm going to warn you that my message may seem a little bit disjointed. Uh, I was trying to put it together and was trying to get my thoughts to flow. But uh, as we say, the muse... This wasn't quite with me, but we'll see what's going to happen here this morning. Okay, I thank I'm thankful for the the toolish that I have with Pastor Colleen and Bishop Ed, because uh, without them I wouldn't be able to stand before you this morning. You know, uh, they have been a great spiritual advisor to me and to my family. And one thing I say about my relationship with Bishop, we have it on three areas from the standpoint that sometimes when I'm talking to him, I'm talking to him as my brother-in-law. Uh-huh. There are times when I'm talking to him as my pastor. Right. Then there are times when I'm talking to him as my bishop. Right. And we can have a conversation when we hit all three and not necessarily in any given order. All right. Let us bow our heads. This is me, O oh Lord, your servant standing before this congregation, yet standing behind you. Let the words of my mouth be acceptable in thy sight. Oh, Lord, we thank you for being with us this morning, and let the Spirit have its way. I do not plan to be in front of you for a very long time. If you remember, I follow the rule of the three Bs. Be scriptural, be short, be seated. My subject this morning and this is the way I started out was Attributes of Elijah, which after gathering all my material, a more appropriate title would be the stages in the life of Elijah. All right. My first scripture comes from another prophet, the book of Jeremiah, the 29th chapter, the 11th verse, in the NIV version, which reads, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, and not to harm you, plans to give you a future. 
if you know me, you know that this is my favorite scripture. But in it, I find that no matter how I may falter, God's plan for my life stays in place. But then as I was thinking, and uh, Sister Jeanette, she said it up this morning, talking about giving a testimony. I was thinking, how many of you in this church really know me? Now, you just know, you know, I'm the guy who comes into the back until Brother Glenn Davis joined our congregation. I was the oldest person here. But now I'm number two. So, I, so to start off this morning, let me give you a little background about me so that you will know me on a more personal basis. My name is James Edgar Crawford, Jr. In my family, without considering the middle name, I am the sixth out of nine James Crawfords. If you want to count my granddaughter, it would be ten. Her name is Jamie Crawford. I was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in 1948 and moved to South Carolina in 1952. Graduated from high school in 1966. I'm throwing out dates. Y'all going, oh man, I wasn't even born then, I know. <laughs> College in 1970. I have had residences in Montgomery, West Virginia, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Jonesboro, Arkansas, Augusta, Georgia, and Chicago, Illinois. I can, and of course, Orangeburg, South Carolina. You can't forget that, okay? I can truthfully say that at one time or another, I have checked all the boxes regarding status when you're filling out an application. I have been married, I have been divorced, I have been single, I have remarried, and now I am widowed. That's a full life, full of good, full of bad, full of ugly, but full of God's unwavering promise that his plans for me are to prosper. I'm the father of three, stepfather to three, grandfather to 14, and now a great-grandfather to three boys and one gorgeous princess. My family is racially mixed, and I refer to my grands as my rainbow coalition. My spiritual walk can be best described as a crawl. I first gave my life to Christ in 1965, and would you know it, the minute that I said I do to Christ and walked out of the sanctuary, old Beelzebub was waiting for me. There he was with all his promises. But I, unlike Christ, was not prepared. I could not fight him, uh, fight his temptation by saying, it is written. Because at that particular time, I didn't know that it was written. But instead, my response was, show me. At which time, I was introduced to wine, women, and song, and not necessarily in the order. One foot in the church and one foot in the club. In 1970, my only sister died at the age of 18. And because I was a, a lukewarm Christian, I got very angry at God. And to be honest, pulled the foot that was in the church out. Now, God continued to let me have a very successful career and walk on a path of denial and self-destruction until he had had enough. I had a Paul-like experience in front of a television after a grueling week of travel. I was standing in front of the TV and the program that I was watching was suddenly interrupted in which a mouth was all that I could identify appeared on my TV screen. 
and a voice saying loudly and clearly, who are you to question me? I was brought to my knees, then laying on the floor in a fetal position, crying uncontrollably. Not too long after that, I found a great church in Chicago, met Bishop's sister, who was visiting Chicago with my favorite parental first cousin, who just happened to be my, and Adela just happened to be my cousin's best friend. Neither one of us intended to get married again, but God had other plans for me. What does this have to do with attributes of Elijah? My namesake in the book of James, James 5.17 says, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. The first stage of Elijah's walk toward, toward being one of God's most effective prophets began in Gilead. This was the place of preparation. And as we go through our walks with God, you will find that he will put us in a place of preparation. In order to become the real deal, he has some training to do. Most of us will marvel at the marvel at the basketball acumen of Kobe Bryant. But what we do not see, or what we did not see, is the preparation that he went through before he took his game to the court. When Bishop and Pastor deliver an uplifting sermon, we give them accolades for speaking to us, thanking them for a powerful word. But we do, but what we do not see is their study. But what we do not see is their prayer. What we do not see is their comparing notes and exchange of ideas with each other. All we, all we know is that they get up before us on every Sunday and deliver powerful messages. But remember, I know the plans I have for you. 1 Peter 5.10 tells us the following. And God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. That's what the get ready is. God is preparing you, getting you ready. God trained Elijah as a mountain man as a colossus man amongst ordinary men. The Bible sets him beside Moses as the primary prophetic figure of the Old Testament. God made him strong, then sent him to the courts of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, the court where the one true God shared recognition with the idol Baal. In his preparation, Elijah walked, talked, and encourage others to believe that truly the Lord was God. As a, as a prophet, he shared God's message and warnings. Often both came under fire. For Elijah, the fact that he was raised in an uncouth environment, the fact that he was not brought around more urbane cultural taste and people, the fact that he grew up at a distance from mass civilization, the fact that he had no lineage or pedigree even worth mentioning in the Bible. There was a reason for it. His assignment in the king's court was to deliver a simple message for God. There will be no rain for three years. All of the crops will die along with the animals. 
eight pages when they stick together, don't they? All of the crops will die along with the animals, for the Israelites have turned to Baal. So if, if the people were going to suffer, guess what? So would Elijah. You know that the good would have to suffer with the bad. However, God told Elijah that he would provide food and drink for him. The next stage in Elijah's walk was a little book called Carrot. Carrot is a place where God will hide you in plain sight while you deal with being by yourself and suffering from separation anxiety. Isaiah 26 reads, Go, my people, enter your rooms and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until my wrath has passed. Before 2020, most of us never heard the phrase social distancing. Then within what seemed like a matter of days, we went from meeting with our friends in our place of worship, our hop, Shoney's, Walmart, or the shopping mall to wear masks, quarantining in our homes, and using technology as our only means of interaction. Sequester, quarantine, these words, these concepts suddenly became not just for political prisoners, poison victims, or criminal juries anymore. They were for all of us. Turns out though, this idea of setting oneself apart has long been a part of God's process in developing his people for usefulness and impact. Throughout his early life, Jesus would often slip away to the wilderness to be alone with God early in the morning while it is still dark, socially distant, even before the rest of us even knew what social distance was a thing. In the 17th chapter of 1 Kings, we see God prescribe for Elijah a season of separation as a necessary stop on the prophet's journal to spiritual maturity and victory. While away from the rest of the Israelite world, Elijah would experience God's provision. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward, hide in the Kerith ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. Go eastward. Go eastward in the morning, what do you see? The sun is rising. Yes. You're walking toward the sun. And that's what, that, that was Elijah's direction. He found the book, and every morning and every evening, he was the recipient of God's room service, delivered by, of all things, yes. ravens. And a raven is nothing but a sophisticated bird. A bird with no homing instinct. Remember when, they, when Noah used them to see if the floodwaters had receded? They never came back. And to top it off, raven is considered unclean in Jewish food laws. An unreliable, unclean bird is being used to feed God's prophet. If he can do that for Elijah, he will do the same for you. Amen. Two words, but God. There is something funny about this scene. Ahab and his army was looking for Elijah. He was a wanted man. They rode all over the countryside looking for him, 
but God had hidden him in plain sight, right next to a little running brook of, brook of water. If you find yourself in your season of courage, do not despise the solitude. The spiritual power that you desire will soon be cultivated at another place and in a different way. As we like to say in the, in the business world, trust the process. For anything can happen when an ordinary life intersects with an extraordinary God. If God has made a promise to you that he will sustain you, take it to the bank. You can believe on it. It is important to remember about God's promise of provision. You will drink of the brook. Was designed to teach Elijah the same lesson that our fickle cherish is intended to teach us. A truth that Elijah would need to know without a doubt before he, before he stepped foot in any other place where God would lead him. His real source of sustenance was not any adequate resources of the brook, because the brook was going to dry up any more than it had been the vast, robust waters of the Atlantic Ocean. The ultimate source of Elijah's and our provision is God himself. We see Elijah in communion with God many times throughout the Old Testament. He sets an example for us in our own walk of faith. He stands as a voice encouraging all to grab prayer and to be a warrior, to know the Lord is God and to follow him. As we learn from the book of James, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed earnestly that it would, might not rain, and it did not rain for three years and six months. Then we come to God directing Elijah to the land of Zarephath, where he would enter the stage of refining. He would once again bear witness to God's promise of provision, but this time, he will find himself among Gentiles. Here's Elijah, a starving Jew in a foreign land. First Kings 17.9 reads, Go once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. Our Father's house, put your imaginations together and to work for you this morning. And picture this, a hungry, exhausted, tattered clothing, bad afro hairdo Jewish man sitting by the city gates of a pagan town. Signs of the ongoing drought have been ravaging the entire region. A quick look around reveals that these same signs are not just his, they are everywhere, in the faces of everyone who passes by. No corner of this territory has been untouched by the drought that has wreaked its habit beyond the borders of Israel and into the economy and food supply of Gentile countries. Much like COVID-19, this drought had no regard for sovereign borders, religious practices, or the pigment of one's skin. Outside of being Israelite, Elijah blended in. What one can tell, however, even if they noticed him, they noticed him looking around that he was definitely looking for someone that he has never seen before. You know how you go to a place and you're trying to meet somebody you never, but you got a general idea what they may look like and you're scanning the room, looking around and hoping that you get some sign that will let you know who they are. 
The only clue that he ha had been given is that she is a widow living here in Zarephath, and that she is somehow connected to his future in this town for as long as God decides to keep him there. He is simply trusting the Lord to point her out to him. There. Is that her? No. What about this one? No. What about that one? No. It got to be this one? No. Elijah sits. Elijah scans. He knows that she's out there somewhere. Then finally he sees her. He's sure of it. He supernaturally realizes that this lonely, thin woman gathering her broken sticks for kindling. Her forehead, her forehead is etched with worry and concern for the widow that he was looking for. The woman with the desperate look on her face is the same person God said would provide nourishment for Elijah in the midst of this drought. Once he spotted her, Elijah might have had this, re this reaction. This woman, Lord, this hungry, helpless, Gentile woman, anyone anyone but her. The weakest, most vulnerable people in the socio-economic socio ladder during Elijah's day were women. But the marginal lives that every woman experienced slowly, slowly was not because of gender, was heightened even further if the woman happened to be unmarried, even worse if she was widowed. A widow had no identity, no sense of belonging, no security. A widow truly existed on the fringes of society, having no male companion as her representative limited her access to the public square and was for all intent and purpose, she had a net worth of zero. So not only had God commanded Elijah to go to a place that seemed unreasonable, he had also called him to make connections there with the person who was thought to be Nothing. Insignificant. All right. Not even worth talking about. Then, to top it off, she also had a son. And during the drought, she and her son would be starving. The city gate was where people, where people would go and, so that she could possibly find help. The place where life change was possible for someone without a means to provide more for herself than the last bit of flour and low oil she had left. And to cap it off, it becomes completely crazy in this situation. God had not sent Elijah to Zarephath to be the strong man who would provide for her. Just the opposite. This widow had been chosen by God to be the avenue of provision for Elijah. I will say it again. But God. Elijah was obedient. And if you do not remember anything that I say today, remember this. If you are obedient, God will put obedient people in your life. Think about it. Here is Elijah, a rugged Jewish man from the mountains of Gilead who believes in the one true God. And he finds himself in the company of a starving woman and her son and who is going to sustain him. And to top it off, they are Gentiles. In Kerem, Elijah was on the receiving end of God's miraculous provision. Yes. 
All he had to do was just sit there. He was accustomed now to being in need, feeling but he was dependent, but knowing what it was like not having sufficient resources to care for himself. And yet this new assignment in the furnace of Zarephath, and that's what Zarephath basically means, to burn, to bring the dross out, to bring the, the good to the top, would have refined him in a way, in, a, in another very unique way. Because of this, one thing for a, for it was one thing for a flock of birds to bring you meat and bread. No one else was there to witness. He was there by himself. Okay, it is sort, it is sort like receiving a financial gift from someone you do not know and may never see again, or getting a glowing comment of encouragement from a post on your social media, and the person did not leave their name. You do not have to be real with ravens. But you do have to be real with the widow and her son. When she is standing right there in front of you, when she is the one who is providing you room and board and can see your need at close range. At Zarephath, you graduate to a harder test. You go from junior high algebra to senior high trigonometry. Zarephath introduces you to being vulnerable. Zarephath involves bearing of the soul that cannot mask or be covered up with makeup or a mask. Zarephath requires complete honesty with oneself and with those who you interact with who is harbored in your heart. In other words, Zarephath cuts us down to size and introduces us to the concept of family. For roughly 18 months, Elijah had been alone at Kerr, learning to live within the context and cadence of solitude. Adjusting to this dynamic of being separate has steadily refined the prophet in one way, but the new dynamics of Zarephath would refine him in another way. In this new place, Elijah will shift from living alone to existing with the context of family, making his home with a single mother and her son. The new dynamic with this daily mundane demands and relief and relationships, you do things kind of like ordinary. You got to do basically the same thing every day, you know. You have to watch out those, relation, those re relational nuances. Watch what you say. You don't want to be hurting anybody's feelings, whatever the case may be. You got to wean yourself from those ingrown tendencies that came from unrestrained solitude. He would transition from a life in which he would be concerned only about his own needs to a season in which awareness and thoughtfulness of others would be essential. Looks like old Elijah got himself married. He didn't even know it. So as we navigate life with one another in the context, in the context of the church, we are essentially navigating family life where we have the ongoing opportunity for development, maturity, and the greater purity and self selflessness of motive. When we are firmly planted and functioning accurately and actively within the family, we are refined. Our inner lives are pruned. Our character is developed. Our demanding sense is self-progressively quiet. We do not think about ourselves anymore. All right. 
your world has to expand. Even if we live alone, the body of Christ is the context where we are never alone. Zerfast is a season of refining, a season of what I see versus what God says. Look at 2 Corinthians 2, the 4th chapter and the 18th verse, and it reads as follows. So we fix our eyes on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is, what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. God uses Elijah to provide hope and peace where there had been neither, to provide food and water where both had been diminished in supply. Most of all, God cared enough and introduces himself to one woman, forgotten by others, but known and seen by a loving, loving father. Now, when God introduced himself to this woman, she had to, to begin believing. She became obedient. Elijah's time in the, in, in the career stage is enabled his faith to, to reflect, to be easily ignited during his interaction with the widow. He seemed almost willingly to jump at the chance to introduce God's provision and promise to her. The same is true for you. Same for you, Dale, Simone, Gary. Same for you, Isadora. God's provision and promise to you always hold forth. Yes. Among the reasons for, for why God has placed you in your office or in that classroom, in your neighborhood, on that board of that organization, even at this church, after having gone through the charity expenses he has allowed into your life, it is because they create a point of contact, the promises of God that you have hidden in your heart and the people around you who are hurting. They need to know the truth of God and how accurately to appreciate it. Their perspective needs to be renewed by encouraging the promises of God. As God matures and refines us, life crisis will not be as capable of flipping the switch inside of us that rams us into fear and anxiety mode. Instead, it will trigger an innate reaction within us to call out to the Lord and cry out to the Lord, trust him, to rely on his sovereignty, to reach out in faith, always believing that our God, as, an Ephesian, as, as the Ephesian scripture teaches us, is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Then there is the miracle of the meal and oil. In the beginning, all she could see was enough meal and oil for yeah. one meal. But he said, he said that you will never run out. Yeah. As Elijah continued in this stage of Zarephath, he would do something that has never been done or recorded before any place in the Old Testament. The widow's son dies. She is distraught. And, he, and Elijah springs into action. Now he got these family values. He takes the boy upstairs to his room, an upper room, if you will, places the boy on the bed, then lays on top of him and began to pray a prayer never before prayed. He cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow I am staying with by killing her son? I want you to note this. When Elijah 
scooped that lifeless boy up, he was taking the whole problem to God in prayer. He took the boy to a place that he had cultivated for prayer, an upper room. But most importantly, he expected God to answer an unreasonable prayer. Elijah's audacious prayer came with no blueprint for him to follow. Apart from the biblical account of Enoch, who was not even dead when God just took him, there is not a single record or hint of a resurrection prayer. If you had, if you had to pray an unreasonable or unthinkable prayer, what would it be? Think about it. Think about it. And then pray about it. The boy came back to life. The widow was so happy she didn't she did not know who to embrace first. Now it was time for the most dramatic stage in the, in the life of Elijah. It is time for Mount Carmel, where Elijah was exposed to counterfeit, where the rain and fire, and no more jumping around. 1 Kings 18.1 reads as follows. After a long time in the third year, the Lord, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain to the land. The drought was about to be over, but before the drought could end, Elijah called the entire nation of Israel to Mount Carmel to ask them one simple question. But before I pose Elijah's question, I have one for you. Have you ever been involved in a friendly debate with a friend or a spouse and during the conversation a statement was made and everybody becomes speechless? Sometimes a single question or statement inserted at just the right time can hush or halt a conversation. Suddenly there is nothing more to be said. Perhaps the most classic on target example is Jesus' comeback to the self-righteous scribes and Pharisees who had hauled before him a half-dressed woman caught in the act of adultery. Their, their, faith, their fists were already clenched around stones. They were ready to stone her at high, for a high noon judgment. The law says she dies. Is that not right, Jesus? We all remember the drama of that unforgiveness scene. Jesus stooping to the ground, running his fingers through the dust, while they loudly buried him for response. After hearing enough of it, he straightened up, the Bible says, positioning his influence directly between the mob and the accused woman. Then letting the intensity of his eyes drill this next sentiment into the hearts, he said this, he who is he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw the stone, the first stone here. If we were in the year 2023, Jesus would have dropped the mic and walked out the stage. Now for Elijah's question, 1 Kings 18.21. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Elijah had asked that question that hushed the entire crowd. 
the people said nothing. Elijah's question is so important and fundamental to what this whole episode of the mountain is meant to communicate that I am closing on this very verse today to allow an opportunity for all of us to participate in self-examination. Why should we ask the Holy Spirit to let this singular question expose any unrecognized areas of our lives that we are hobbling along in our loyalty and devotion to God? Perhaps you are giving priority to people or activities over allowing your loyalty to shift back and forth between him and the other legions on your mood of pressures from your peers. Let Elijah's question penetrate the depths of your soul in this moment. Be honest. One way to begin determining where your allegiance, where your allegiance lie is to survey what the bulk of, you, of your resources say. Your time, your money, your words, your talents. Think of the call logs, your social media threads, your bank accounts. What does a quick one-month scroll to these databases reveal about your consistency in being loyal to God? And the people said nothing. But God said, I have plans for you. Thank you. Amen, amen, amen. We know that you were blessed by today's message. We have to not only be listeners of the Word of God, but also doers. To find out what your next steps may be, simply go to ofhorangeburg.com forward slash next. Come again next week where we will make sure you have a place to find God.